Okay, so we have the the fantabulous Samantha Castro on the line. You've been on this trip. Tell uh, yeah, just 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 tell us about it. Oh God. Okay. Um, so I met a group of American activists in Paris last year, and uh, we spent some time doing actions together. And it just inspired me, along with the people I already knew in America, um, to go check out what's going on there. And I guess I went there with intent. I hadn't been there since uh, 2001, right before 9-11. So I wanted to see, you know, the state of the empire, I guess, and and also to try and consolidate some of the bonds and the connections with other activists. So I I headed out there with a a very sort of deliberate, intentional mission, I guess, uh, to spend time with... uh, in fact, I don't know if I can go on a normal holiday now. <laughs> I think I can only do activist adventures. <laughs> I think I know that virus. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so, yeah, I travelled to Chicago in Illinois and um, around the Rust Belt in Indiana and Michigan City. And then I went over to Portland uh, and then down to San Francisco and met with organisers and activists and veterans and yeah, homeless people. <laughs> I met a lot of homeless people um, and had conversations about what's happening, of course, in the midst of the madness of the Trump-Hillary uh, election. Yeah, well, I mean, and, that's I mean, that's obviously uh, something to constrain our conversation a little bit. We could uh, love to hear about every moment of it, but I guess, you know, a particular question that really jumps to mind for me is, you know, given the... The atmosphere of uh, the election and just uh, you know late capitalism and it's just it's all very epic and apocalyptic, kind of uh, watching it from afar. What's the mm. sense of it all actually on the ground? I just, I just I'm just really curious what the vibe is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, it's amazing because I was staying with really good people who I love and trust uh, throughout my journey, uh, which I feel very blessed to have those connections, but. There is a, a, a palpable anxiety and um, depression, I would say, amongst the activist community that I was engaged with. Yeah. And in general, the, the, you know, compared to being there in 2001, prior to 9-11, um, the, the anxiousness and the tension uh, across the country is quite palpable. Um, and everything uh, that's going on with the election on, on, on top of all of the issues that they're facing uh, in terms of like, capitalism and, um, you know, racial segregation is back in fashion uh, in a big way. So it's it's a very anxious country, and I think it's also um, a country that is in disbelief over, you know, where they're at and, and what's going on with um, camping in town. So... Just kind of, uh, and it's it's kind of like a tinderbox environment. I feel like I feel like at any point it could be just one thing that that whole country could explode mm. into racial violence, basically. Yeah. yeah. Um, my mind's going as you're talking to uh, a talk of Noam Chomsky's uh, years back. I think it was a really old one in the seventies, and he was talking about uh, I think libertarian uh, socialism and kind of laying out his grand. Uh, thesis or hopes for the future and he was talking about America as uh, you know 
if if a, a revolution was going to happen, uh, how important it was to happen in America. And just hearing from you talking about that anxiety of um, your you know our American. Uh, friends who are activists over there, you know, how much pressure, you know, do you think is actually on them? Because, you know, there is a sense, uh, you know, no matter what Chomsky says, uh, that we are looking to them to to respond, aren't we? I mean, we're, we're, we're relying on them to respond. I mean, that must be some, re- that's a really heavy, heavy shit for them to deal with. <laughs> yeah, look, I think they're really politically aware and conscious humans that are doing amazing work in all sorts of movement over there. Of course, that's a burden. They understand the impact they have on the rest of the world. Um, but I, I, I think in general, in the general population and people I spoke to that were sort of, you know, new activists but weren't activists themselves or that I met just sort of out of dinner and stuff um, and that I saw within the mainstream media that's presented over there and even the, the left media... Uh, I, I would stick to what I've always thought about America since I first went there when I was 19. And, and that is it's a really insular country. Uh, and I think even for the people that are working on the ground are trying to achieve social justice or environmental justice, um, I think they're at a point in their country where their focus is so internal, things are so bad, things are so falling apart, they're unable to even consider what's happening in the rest of the world, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. And I think that's a huge burden for the people that are aware of the impact that they're having. Uh, but they're also very, very aware that they can't even deal with their own country right now. Yeah. Uh, I don't think there's a single activist that I met across the country that said things are looking up, things are <laughs> turning a corner, yeah. <laughs> you know. Uh, there's a sort of melancholy which is understandable. Um, I, think, I wouldn't say it's completely defeated, yeah. but I don't think that the rest of the world can look for to America as the shining light or as the the movement that is going to start the revolution to pull us out of this neoliberal capitalist, you know, idea of democracy. Uh, in fact, I think the empire is going to crumble in a big way. Yeah. Well. Whether it was intentional or not, uh, you're there for basically the five-year anniversary of Occupy, and you know mm. I think lots of people were probably looking for, uh, you know, perhaps uh, some fire to be sparked at that five-year anniversary, but uh, uh, not much happened. I mean, is that part of, you know, is, is that a, a kind of symptomatic of of exactly what you're talking about, the, the level of despair there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think Occupy is, you know, pretty much even amongst the activist community seen as a, you know, in some ways realistically what it was, which was a spark that Mm. brought people together. And some of those people are now doing really great work together, much as they are in Australia and around Europe, etc. But I didn't hear any talk of Occupy. I mean, the only mention I heard of Occupy was at an event at Chicago University where a black academic, uh, Adolf Reed, was talking about identity politics getting in the way of building new social movements. And he referred to Black Lives Matter in what I sort of couldn't wrap my head around, which he said it was like the black version of Occupy. Mm. Um, I sort of had massive issues with that. Because <laughs> yeah. as much as I love what Occupy represented, it was about challenging, you know, concept of neoliberalism and power structures, etc. 
what Black Lives Matter is about an entire group of people that have been shot on the streets and having their children shot on the streets mm-hmm. and fighting back against that injustice. So I see them as very different things. Um, but he's a person who's very well-versed in America, involved in social movement, and an academic saying, yeah, no, it was just this little spark thing and it's going to figure out. So um, I, don't, I don't know what the lasting legacy of Occupy is for America other than much like Australia, maybe a, a group of great organisers came out of it that have moved on to other more singular issues or are looking to build mm. you know, movement in a more intersectional way. Uh, but there certainly wasn't any talk of doing anything around the anniversary that I heard of. All focus was on um, North Dakota. And, and, you know, to be honest, I was hanging out with anti-war and environmental activists, yes. some um, sort of living wage activists as well, but mainly environmental. So, you know, their focus is still very much on car fans and, and North Dakota at the moment. Um, and there didn't seem, you know, any sort of, even kind of nostalgic conversations that I overheard in the build-up to the five-year anniversary, yeah. So it seems like it's kind of, it's gone yeah. in that respect. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it is reflective of where people are at. Uh, in America, there are massive fires sort of everywhere in terms of, you know, social justice. And people are trying to put those fires out and hold the line and resist in a, a country that is rapidly decaying economically uh, that is, you know, a breath away from, you know, racial violence on a mass level, as far as I'm concerned. Um, and, and Trump has laid a lot of the foundation for that to occur. So I think they've got real big current issues. Yeah. And I don't think there's a single person that I met, whether they were a homeless person or an activist or an organiser, uh, who didn't acknowledge that they are totally screwed Either way, they're in a really shit situation and things are going to get worse. So it's looking pretty dark and it kind of brought me back to, you know, thinking about Tony Howard coming into power, you know. Yeah. Um, for us, you know, we've, we've now seen that the legacy of him getting into power, you know, continuing to the Turnbull government. So the consequences for what people can, what can be undone, uh, you know, are enormous for America. Um, and, you know, they're really feeling it. And, yeah, I, don't, I just, I didn't see any sort of movement cohesion either. Um, so there wasn't a lot of intersectionality or crossing into other people's sort of worlds and, and issues. Everyone is kind of hunkered down. It's a very sort of a bunker-like mentality. And I think they're absolutely fatigued and exhausted by the electoral process as well. well. Yeah, I mean that electoral process. Um, you know, obviously there was a a, a lot of uh, momentum, a lot of hope, and uh, that was channeled into the Bernie Sanders campaign, which is obviously, yeah. you know, crashed and burned. And uh, you know, I mean, there's obviously there was grandiose hopes, you know, which were uh, expressed by Bernie himself that uh, that the people that were engaging his campaign uh, needed to be. Engage beyond just the electoral kind of uh, circus, but uh, not much mm. of that happening. Or is there hopes of, I guess, uh, that uh, emerging after the election? Yeah, look, I think there are a little seeds of it. I saw some of that in Chicago. Um, the independent political organisations are working to build sort of chapters and movement at what they called board levels. So electoral levels is electorate levels. I guess is how it would translate in Australia. Mm. Um, and, and that is occurring. There are people that have come out of the Sanders movement and rather than 
um, holding to the hope, you know, that Bernie will be the one leading the revolution. They've understood that they need independent political organisations. And they are slowly building uh, something to sort of, I guess, for the next election and for council elections, you know, local government, you know, the state government. They're looking at the way, you know, the ideas and the platform put forward can be translated and to try and do it in a really uh, democratic and inclusive way. So some of those things that I saw are really hopeful and they're really good organisers that have taken up that challenge. I think the biggest problem um, is that, you know, the Sanders movement is now um, fractured and split. So there are people that are, you know, never Hillary. There are people going, well, we're going to have to hold our nose and vote for Hillary because Trump's a disaster. Uh, and then there are people suggesting a complete boycott and protest of not voting. And then there are, of course, people on the same side countering that, saying, well, you're going to hand the election to Trump. Yeah. Um, so much as we have in our own internal politics here in Australia, there is a lot of discussion um, around which is the path, you know the pathway forward, and yeah, at least we have know, a you know a preferential voting system, which kind of um, you know alleviates some of that uh, you know that despair and you know, yeah, conflict. I imagine with that that process over there. Yeah, exactly. So you know, there's there's small slivers of that kind of stuff going on, um, but it's it's what a long way. Like it's, it's, the Green Party over over there has no power at all mm. now. If a fully established party can't, you know, sort of break through, um, I don't know if we have the kind of timelines in terms of climate change and perpetual war uh, to try and build an entirely separate political movement to then take over the political movement from, you know, well-established, uh, you know, well-controlled um, machines like the Democratic National Council and, and the Republican Party, so the GOP. So I think it's worth doing as much as I think it's worth um, good people engaging in electoral politics in Australia mm. in an independent way. Uh, but I I also think in terms of, you know, the, the planetary crisis that we're facing, which is being spearheaded by America in so many ways... Uh, I, I feel like, you know, they're talking in decades and I'm not sure we have decades if it continues down the pathway it's going. Yeah. You know, so... But people are doing what they can, I guess, on that level to try and find a way to garner that momentum. But unfortunately, I would have to say, looking in from the outside, a lot of that momentum has just been lost or dissipated and doing what the left does best all over the world, which is eat, eat itself alive, you know. Speaking of, of that, um, <laughs> I, I can't uh, be talking to you and I guess not uh, put this question forward. Um, uh, our mate uh, Julian Assange um, and uh, his contribution to uh, encouraging the, the left to eat itself alive. Mm. Um, you know, what's, your, what's your comments on uh, his uh, his? The shenanigans he's been up to over the past few weeks. I mean, uh, there's... Yeah, I'm interested in your thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, <laughs> the man who asked the tough questions. Hey, Julian, if you're listening to this. Uh, so, look, I... On some levels, I understand WikiLeaks and Julian's position of exposing the machinations of 
the machinery that has become our supposed, you know, left-leaning, you know, democracy sort of, you know, democratic party in, in America. Uh, I certainly think that Hillary Clinton deserves to be exposed uh, for, for the death and destruction she has caused, both to her own country and the rest of the world. Uh, I absolutely think she's complicit. So in one level, I... I kind of uh, understand the choices that have been made, but I I wonder what is motivating Julian in terms of you know the timing of the releases, etc. It may be he didn't have the information before the primaries, mm. um, but I feel like if he really wanted to influence and disrupt the Democratic Party, if he did have that information before the primaries when Sanders actually had a chance and he withheld it. Um, then, you know, the question has has to be asked, what was his motivation and was it just revenge? And, um, you know, he, he does like to hold a grudge, so I hear. Uh, so, <laughs> you know, there's good reasons for him not to like the Obama administration or Hillary Clinton. There's many good reasons. Yeah. Uh, and I totally agree with the exposure of all of those machinations behind the scenes. Uh, I question the timing. I'm not sure if it's actually been helpful at all. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think in some ways, and maybe this is, you know, uh, a symptom of someone who's um, isolated from the community, uh, or maybe it's just who he's talking to in America. I think a lot of the discussion in America around the WikiLeaks uh, leaks, and of course they were being discussed every day on CNN and all of those Foxtels and, you know, uh, Fox News and all the mainstream uh, channels, whether they were left-leaning or right-leaning. Mm. Uh, WikiLeaks is definitely in the air. Uh, most of it, uh, obviously, on the right-leaning um, side, was strangely kind of supportive. Mm-hmm. It's just... you know, so there was a bizarre thing going yeah. on where I'm watching the same people who were calling for his assassination right, yeah. now praising, you know, the exposure. And then, of course, you've got the the Democratic Party and Hillary, you know, basically uh, all saying, well, you know, He's terrible and he's a puppet of Russia and he's trying to help Trump get elected. I don't believe that that is what motivated him. uh, You've got Glenn Glenn Greenwald, uh, you know, firing some pretty reasonable shots at him that he's, uh, you know, being irresponsible. I don't know whether you've seen that uh, recent, uh, uh, you know, those recent comments of his. What is Glenn's position? He's just basically saying that, uh, you know, uh, his sociopath, I think, was his uh, direct quote uh, for for not, uh, not, you know, not properly curating uh, the information that he's been, he's releasing. Yeah. Um, But there's mixed, you know, again, it's it's a real mixed bag. I mean, you just had, uh, you know, only a few weeks ago, uh, you know, Yanis Varoufakis and, you know, massive, uh, you know, celebrating his, uh, what, four years or so in the in the Ecuadorian embassy, um, you know, uh, pledging all their support and, you know, not just Yanis Varoufakis, you know, a really big bunch of uh, left-leaning intellectuals. So just, yeah, in terms of the, uh, you know, the suicidal tendencies of the left, it seems to be um, mm. you know, revolving, <laughs> you know, this conflict yeah, yeah, look, I, I think Julian has always dealt badly with conflict, mm. <laughs> and, um, speaking from personal experience. And I also, you know, I don't know if I would call it sociopathic. I think it's quite predictable behavior, if you know Julian at all. Mm. Um, Julian does not let things go. Uh, and so I think it, it does cloud his judgment. 
I think he operates out of a sense of false righteousness, sometimes sometimes because of the way he has been persecuted, and he definitely has been persecuted. Uh, and, I, yeah, I just, I really question the timing. I just, it's just not been helpful, and it's also kind of got lost in the noise of the election. It's just kind of used as a bantering point back and forwards. It really hasn't gained the kind of traction that I think Julian thought it would gain. Uh, and Hillary's, uh, you know, machinery has been quite easily able to deal with it. Yeah. So I don't think it's been very effective. And I... But it, it, it quite possibly could have been, Sam, if, you know, if it hadn't mm. had the leaks that, you know, been coming out against, you know, with Trump, with the obviously the, the crazy... You know, obscene things that have been revealed about him. Uh, you know, if his campaign had been less uh, suicidal itself, then you know these things. You know, what he's released could actually have bitten quite hard. And and what would have been the impact of that? A Trump presidency. I mean, it's yeah. uh, it's quite understandable why why people are um, up amused by it. I guess. Yeah. Well, and also confused. By it. Yeah. You know, I, I don't think he's a puppet of Russia. I, you know, I think that's just way too simplistic yeah. for such a complex being. Uh, I, I think he is primarily motivated by his own um, self-exploration of, of what he wants to achieve. And, and, and Julian has always, you know, for everything that he has done, and there's a lot of it to suggest that he's got some really serious emotional issues, yeah. but he has always been brave in the face of the empire. And he's always thumbed his nose at the American Empire. Um, so it's, yeah, it's really bizarre. You know, I'm, I'm going to kind of go, well, maybe he didn't have the information before the primary, uh, which is why he didn't release it, because I'd really hate to find out that he'd been sitting on this information, uh, because the place where it would have effectively actually really hurt Hillary and perhaps sent the Democratic Party on a new trajectory would have been... Well, in sent, the build up for the primary. Yeah, sent the whole world on a different trajectory. I mean, seriously. Yeah, um, exactly, exactly. For, really what he's done here is released a whole heap of, um, you know, day-to-day machinations of, of a political party, which I find fascinating personally, yeah. uh, but that, it, that it's really just fed into the surface-level rubbish that is going on in the commentary. Uh, there is no critical analysis happening in mainstream media about Trump or Hillary or their policies. And you can see that in the presidential debates. Like, you know, clearly the last presidential debate was really like, well, she's a bitch and he's, a, he's, he's, he's an ass and uh, I'll do it better than him. And she did this when she was, you know, back in the day. And it was just like watching a high school kissy fit going on, really. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. uh, so I, I kind of feel like, yeah, anything that he's released has had no impact other than to confuse people because suddenly the writer, uh, uh, suddenly WikiLeaks is awesome. Uh, and Hillary has been really easily able to manoeuvre her. It's had no impact on her. And it's certainly not in the minds of um, the American public in a real way. They're talking about it, but only because it's sort of gossip level uh, rather than actually understanding what any of that information means in terms of how power is constructed in America. So he's played a very dangerous game, and I think Glenn is right to say it's irresponsible. Um, you know, I, I'm not sure if it's sociopathic, but, you know, it could be. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and that's a sad state uh, 
of perhaps the distortions that Julian is dealing with within his own personality and with the people that are advising him uh, being, you know, held in a state. And for, for Ecuador to cut off his internet connection, uh, I mean, that just shows you how powerful, you know, Hillary's machinery is. Mm. And any, any impact he thought he was going to have, you know, I saw them tweet out something saying, well, it's not too late, why don't you choose Bernie, you know, basically. Uh, and it's like, no, Julian, actually it is too late. It's way too late, you know. So, well, that was a tweet in the in, in the past few weeks. Surely he doesn't misunderstand the situation. That surely uh, not. it was it was it was a reply to somebody tweeting at him, yeah. um, basically saying what I said earlier, which is why didn't you release this information? Mm. You know, prior to the primaries when it could have actually helped. Uh, and there was not really a direct response to that, other than to talk about you know. Uh, what you're not interested in understanding how the Democratic Party constructs its power. And then the second response to that, well, it's not too late, why don't you do it now? Meaning, why don't you pick an alternative president? And it's like, really, what world are you living in? (laughs) (laughs) You know? Um, Okay. No, it's not going to happen. And I think what's really interesting in juxtaposition to Julian's attempt to influence uh, US politics, which clearly it was, uh, is on the other hand, you have Brigida, who helped Julian, uh, Johnster in Iceland, who helped Julian release collateral murder and those amazing, you know, revelations that came out thanks to Chelsea Manning. Mm. And she's looking poised to become the leader of Iceland. You know, what different pathways they've both taken um, in terms of how they've been able to influence power. So I'm finding that really interesting, watching these two things running side by side. Yeah. It'll be great to talk to our friend, videographer. Yeah, Kathy. That'll be. Yeah. It'll be very exciting to have a chat to her and follow that. So I don't know what's going to happen over there. You know, I just. I just feel really strongly America is in for a whole lot of trouble. You know, um, and I mean violent trouble. I, it, it, there are parts of America that are dilapidated to the point where, you know, there aren't even supermarkets in towns. Um, people can eat fast food, or they can travel somewhere else to buy groceries. So, you know, the the level of poverty in that country is extraordinary, um, and I think it's a really good example of the late failure of neoliberal capitalism. Uh, and what happens when you try and entwine capitalism with the concept of democracy? It just doesn't work, you know. And I and I I worry for the people I know that are there that are fighting so hard to change things. And everything is militarized. All the communities are militarized. The responses in North Dakota have been extraordinary um, in terms of overreach. So I feel like that's a symptom of what's to come for much more of America. And I think Trump has done his work. Um, Trump has done his work whether he wins or not, and he's not going to win. Because he has whipped up that far-right, you know, our version of UPS mentality uh, that is absolutely founded on violent racist views. And those people feel emboldened. Those people feel like they have been given voice uh, to behave in ways that are just pretty damn outrageous. And I think after this election, Trump will cry foul that it was rigged which in some respects he's right the whole system is rigged right um 
he's not using it in that way. He's using it to whip up hatred. And that's what's going to come after this election. That's what I really fear for, for the people that I know in America who live in really dangerous towns like Chicago. I just think there's a lot of um, class and race warfare that is going to uh, be encouraged and played out after this election. And I think America will continue down the same path in terms of using violence to maintain its dominance on the world. Woohoo! Yay! <laughs> Exciting. On a brighter note, get North Dakota. Yes. How amazing are the Native American mobs coming together? Yeah. No, and that's, um, you know, apart from just the very tangible. Uh, you know, efforts they're they're, they're making. Um, you know, there's something much kind of deeper. You know, symbolically, profoundly in you know first peoples of that part of the world. Uh, you know, this is just amazing, amazing story. Uh, deep. It's extraordinary, and you know, one of the people I met, who I met in Paris and caught up with in Portland Lakes, uh, works with Native American teenagers on a reservation school. Uh, where part of the curriculum is teaching about historic trauma. Wow. Uh, which, you know, is both painful but also beautiful, and then they find cooperative games and ways to release that and talk about it and share it, etc. So I have friends who are Native American who are in North Dakota at the moment, and, you know, I think what the rest of the world has to recognise is not only are they fighting the pointy end of the end of the industrial age and the fossil fuel extractive racist institutionalized, you know, uh, machinery. But every time they stand up in front of those armed National Guards with their, you know, tanks and their pepper spray and their tear gas and their batons and their drones and their helicopters, etc., they are holding space much as the Aboriginal community would be in Australia where they know the violence that will come at them for daring to do so. Yeah. And they have the historic trauma and memory of how that has played out generation after generation. And yet they stand in strength and non-violence. And it's quite extraordinary. And, you know, what I've been saying to everyone I met in America, if you can get there, get there. Yeah. Like, go. That's where you should be right now. This, you want to talk about movement building? This is where you build movement. Everything begins with addressing the colonial extractive violence um, of our cultures and what it's imposed on the indigenous people of those lands, both in America and in Australia. And the best thing that we can do is every time they lead, we should stand right behind them and right with them and in solidarity. Uh, And, you know, it is slowly happening over there, but... Again, you know, the the laws over there are, are extreme. And you probably saw that the woman who filmed uh, the small crew of people that shut down all the oil <laughs> into America, nine of them, I think, yeah. um, the woman who filmed one of, one of those safety valves being shut down is, you know, being charged with three felonies that amount to 45 years in jail. Yeah. She didn't even do anything other than film. Um, they no, this is this is not uh, yeah, you're not referring to Amy Goodman there and what happened with her um, democracy. No, Man, this no, is another, this is another this young is, yeah. filmmaker yeah. who went along with the small group of nine activists that shut down all the tar sands pipelines into America. Mm. Uh, I think there were eight or nine that they shut down, and she went with a couple of the activists that shut down one valve and um, was charged with three felonies that amount to 45 years. And they have a three-strike policy there 
as well for political sort of, you know, um, God, trespasses or, you know, if you do something political but it's still breaking the law, um, you know, you end up in jail after three times. So they don't have the luxury that we still have in this country to push back. Mm. You know, I've been arrested maybe 18 times and I've been charged maybe four or five times and I still don't have a criminal record. You know, uh, when I told my friends in America that, they laughed at me. They were like, your ass would have been in jail years ago. (laughs) So the deterrence for people to take anything that is, you know, direct action is is high in terms of, do I want to go to jail for this? Uh, Is it effective if I'm out of the picture for two years, five years, ten years, 45 years? (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Um, these these are all ways that the American government has managed to stifle any real pushback from the community. And what I take from that is a very serious lesson for Australia is we still have the capacity to do that and we should do it while we can and set ourselves off on another pathway while we still can. And, and I really felt that coming home. I felt like as bad as things are here, we still have a chance to change this. We can still do this if we can distance ourselves from America and its its surveillance and its policies and its wars. But if we can focus on actually moving this country into a more sustainable, equitable, um, democratic process through our direct actions, uh, I think we can still achieve that here. I'm not so sure they can do that in America without a lot of people getting killed. You know, that's kind of where it's at. And in fact, I had a message from a friend at North Dakota the other day saying, I think we need bulletproof this. It's not going to be long before they shoot at us. Um, just to give people an understanding of the kind of state, mm. you know. Uh, and and this is the struggle. This is the struggle out of the end of the industrial age into something else. And it will be what we make of it. Or we, you know, go down fighting. But... It's a really big one for America, and, and I, if anything, I feel like people that are organizing and doing activism there need the support from the people around the world, mm-hmm. just as much as those people did in the Arab countries when they rose up. Yeah, yeah. I, I think we need to understand how oppressed and how incredibly violent and militarized America has become, mm-hmm. even for its own uh, political activists. And uh, they have a long track record of suppression and interference so it's a very tough space, and they are facing very many, many challenges. Uh, and it, you know, who would have thought? I mean, I think Australia, in in many ways, is a bloody huge mess. And and yet, I came back feeling like, wow, like we've actually still got a chance here. We should take it. Yeah. 